Attention is the currency of the modern economy. Entrepreneurs need the attention of investors, of customers. But teachers need the attention of students. Musicians need the attention of agents and fans. Attention is how you build a brand, how you build a business, how you build a career. Welcome to Enoughness. My name is Lisa Wang, national champion and Hall of Fame gymnast turned serial entrepreneur. This is a show that dives into the deeply personal stories of top business leaders, entrepreneurs, artists, and athletes who share the defining inflection points that help them embrace their life's purpose and answer the question, how much is good enough? Today on the show, we have a special guest and good friend of mine, Ben Parr. He's the co-founder and CMO of Octane AI, which enables stores to send abandoned cart messages over Facebook Messenger, automatically answer customer questions, intelligently recommend products, and more. He is the author of the best-selling book, Captivology, The Science of Capturing People's Attention, named the top marketing book of 2015 by Strategy and Business Magazine and Small Business Trends. He sits on the board of directors of Samasource, a global nonprofit dedicated to giving work through impact sourcing, and sits on the advisory board of Lufthansa Airlines. Previously, Ben was a venture capitalist, a columnist and commentator for CNET, and co-editor and editor-at-large of Mashable. He is a member of the Forbes 30 Under 30. Before we get started with Ben's story... I want to give a big shout out to the listeners and share the review of the week. This is something that we do every week, um, and we'll be sharing some of the reviews that uh, are shared on iTunes. So this week's review goes to Anna Cogswell, who wrote, No matter your background, gender, or socioeconomic class, this podcast is relatable and thought-provoking. Lisa does a great job answering the questions we're all asking through conversations with insightful industry leaders. Thank you so much, Anna. And this is something that we are trying to do every single week, which is just to give you diverse industry leaders. And this week, we have someone who's just really special. Ben, you are a serial entrepreneur, an investor, editor of a major publication, best-selling author, technologist, and a talented swing dancer. What have you not done? Oh, <laughs> uh, that's a good... There's a lot of things. I have not explored Tokyo or Japan, which is my next travel spot. I have not learned how to hang glide. I want to learn that. Um, and I have not built a billion-dollar company, which would be awesome. Okay. Well, um, I want to go back to the... I should say yet, not yet. yet. Yes, Both of us. that's definitely... Yet is always. I mean, I feel like your audience will know yet is part of it, but I had to say it anyway. Yeah, yeah, you're on that road. Um, I want to go back to the Ben as a little boy because, you know, you have such an impressive resume right now. And I think perhaps some of the people who are listening are thinking about how they can do all the things that you've achieved. But what did you dream of becoming as a little boy? What did I dream of? There was a couple of different things. I definitely at one point wanted to be a doctor. I mean, as uh, almost, you know, I'm half Asian. So every Asian at some point I feel like is like told you should be a doctor. And I'm like, I can be a doctor. And then I wanted to be a 
physicist. So I actually went to college. So I got into, so I went to Northwestern in Chicago and I got into Northwestern with an essay about my fourth and final life goal, which is still my fourth and final life goal, which was an essay about how I was going to build a commercial space station and what it was going to entail and how I was going to accomplish it. And so uh, I went in for physics and I wanted to like study astronomy. But I realized during college, and I know this is off topic, but I realized during college that I wanted to be on the, like, I needed to be on the business end of science as well as, like, the research end in order to enact change, which also makes me a little bit sad because I feel like a lot of researchers uh, could be, should be our great leaders, and we don't give them that opportunity. Mm-hmm. And what, what makes you still have that as your fourth and final goal? Because it's insane, and that's what I love about it. Because <laughs> I still want to build a commercial space station. I want to have a space station uh, that I beat Elon Musk's to, Musk to that has like a hotel, that has maybe a casino in the middle, but also has like a university wing. So like, you know, maybe like a wing for Northwestern or something like that, that has like all those sorts of things and makes it like brings space closer to the rest of humanity, not just for like the 1%, but for like, you know, everybody could access this or that it becomes more part of a regular part of our lives because there is a whole difference. As I have been told, I have not yet fully gone into space. That's something I got to do soon. But you look down upon the earth from all the way up there and you realize that we are one, that the world is smaller than you know, that all the differences in the world mean very little in the cosmic scheme of the universe. Mm. I remember when we had dinner the other, I think it was a couple months ago, and this is the first time I ever played this game with anybody, and we ended up playing it, which was the empire building game, which, do you remember that? I do. Where you basically asked me kind of what sorts of empires I wanted to build, and so I talked about creating a shoe empire, and uh, um, what is it, I wanted to create a philosophy, an entire philosophy to be clear to the rest of the audience, <laughs> it's not because I wanted you to be like, I'm going to take over everything. It was to really hone in on what uh, – I feel like this is a lot issue for a lot of entrepreneurs yeah. or a lot of aspiring entrepreneurs, honing in on what you really want to accomplish and what you uh, actually want to do and how those pieces fit together. Because mm-hmm. I want to do 50 or 60 different things, but I try to focus very hard on just one thing at a time mm-hmm. and really focus in on that. Octane is the thing now, but you can't really build blocks when you're building 20 until like – Unless you're like Bar Cuban, in which case you could throw money at 19 and really focus on one or do whatever you want. But mm-hmm. until then, you got to really focus in on one and then use that to build on top of it. And so same thing with careers. You start with like you build the base layer, but you, you, you have to build on top of that and you build on top of it just like you're building a tall building. And if you build with a – like in the early days, the stronger the foundation, the better your career or the stronger your company – the more you're able to do. Entrepreneurs, for example, a lot don't think about or before they start a company, uh, networking with potential technical co-founders if they're non-technical. Um, and the number one thing that determines the early success or failure of a company, this is actually a stat from uh, my friends at YC gave me, the number one thing that predicts success or failure to the Y Combinator Accelerator Program is how long of a period of time have the founders known each other. Mm. And so the more longer you've known them, the more likely you are to be successful. Um, and the only way to really do that is be thinking about that now before you've started something. Who would I want to team up with? Who do I want to build a relationship with? Long before you start actually a company together. 
How long have you known your Octane founders? Over a decade. Got it. So my co-founder, Matt, uh, I met him on the internet before I moved to tech or moved to Silicon Valley years ago. And the first time we met in person was when I moved in with him and two others in Mountain View in the early days when I was a junior editor at Mashable. Mm. Where do you think your ambitions came from? Like, What was your family like or your your home life like? So I grew up on a small town in the middle of, where, middle of nowhere, Illinois, with a lot of cows and corn, soybeans, pigs, you know, uh, like 7,200 people. There's uh, nothing really to do there. It's a great place to grow up, but not a... Like, not too much to do, which yeah, is good. I'm a, a Midwesterner, Wisconsin, Illinois as well. See, Wisconsin, Wisconsin, <laughs> Illinois. I've never heard of Wisconsin, <laughs> Illinois. That'd be an awesome city to visit. But, yeah, so I grew up in, like, a small town. And, like, on, on one hand, like, life is, like, really serene. You don't have to worry about locking your door. You have to worry about certain things that people and others and cities have to worry about. But on the other hand, there was, like, two Asians in my entire City and so, I experienced not not to the extent a lot of other people have, but a couple of times of like, like people holding their their like their eyes like to do the slanty eye thing. Uh, certain words I will not repeat on this podcast, um, and that shaped me a little bit too. Of like, there's this like different piece of adversity that I had to face and overcome just because of the way in which I was born not because of anything that I did. Like, I can handle, like, uh, I can I can handle it, but it still is just, like, sucks. But overall, great childhood, uh, loved growing up in the Midwest. I feel like those Midwestern values keep me more, keep me grounded, or at least as grounded as, uh, more grounded than I deserve to be. Uh, but, yeah, childhood. So then where did those ambitions come in? At what point did you say, you know, I'm going to Silicon Valley? Uh, the second gonna... part of it. So I mean, I've always had the ambitions, but like it was like a little bit high school was different. It was like a coasted I coasted a little bit, but I was valedictorian. Like there like I had some kind of capability. And then college was like, "Oh, you are not the smartest anymore. Go work hard." And even if you work hard, you're not like you're not going to guaranteed success. You're not guaranteed that A. Maybe I'll give you that A. Maybe I won't. Um, that tested my mettle some. The ambition, I don't know where that, if there's like a place it exactly comes from, but in college I really thought about uh, being able to to impact change. So, okay, this actually leads to a very corny thing that I, li- that I say about my life. And so uh, I've known kind of like the core like mission of my life since college. What's and that? It is that I have, and it's corny, I'm just going to warn you all now, it's that I have the ability and thus the responsibility to change the world for the better. Um, and I know that's corny, but what that is... That resonates a, with me. But it's a guiding light in the sense that I use that to make decisions. I Like, for example, I knew Mashable was not like, I'm going to completely change the world here. Um, I definitely made an impact with the articles I wrote, but... It also helped me build a network and build relationships. And I could see the longer term mm-hmm. vision of like using that as the stepping stone to other kinds of change. And I've generally... And it would give you a platform like to jump off of into the next one. And as you know, platform can can vastly uh, amplify change. Like I describe it as years ago, if I wanted to get $10,000 for a charity, 
I would have had to like go door to door to a whole bunch of places. Now I can call a few people or I can post a few times on social media and be able to drive that. And that's like a big difference. Mm-hmm. And But I could use that for for positive change of some kind, whether it's mm-hmm. like for like Sama Source, which I said on the board, love or something else. Uh, and then like when you are starting a company, you have the way to guide that to make some kind of positive change and then you build up from there. So like, you know, uh, I think of it like like Bill Gates as an example, you know, built Microsoft. You can debate, did that make it? I think it made the world a better place for the most part, but obviously there's also like, he was very competitive and antitrust level competitive. But now he's using that to make an incredible impact upon the world that you just can't even argue against all the things that Bill and Melinda have been able to do. So this is how I kind of see the evolution of like the ambition. It's not about, it's about if I do these things, then I can level up the level of impact that I might be able to make. What kind of impact specifically do you, I mean, are you starting in now? I mean, obviously, there's so many ways to change the world, so many issues. What's your focus? My focus, uh, my immediate focus is uh, not dying and making sure that <laughs> my team is as happy as they can be. Like, that is actually my number one motivation at the moment. With So, like, with Octane, um, I do believe we can vastly improve and change the shopping experience for both, like, small – like. Everyone from like smaller retailers and like local stores. We have one called Verclair Boutique. They're out of Bloomington, Illinois. They uh, like sh- like uh, Christina Verclair. She sells like these awesome trendy like clothes for petite women. It's a small store. They used Octane AI. Their sales went up by fourteen percent overall. And for those sales. listening who don't really know how Octane AI works, could you explain briefly? Sure. So. The same kind of way in which you did email marketing, we enable over Facebook Messenger because customers have moved away from email and moved away from social media platforms and moved towards one-on-one messaging. And stores use our software to do communicate with their stores, with their uh, customers in an automated fashion, one-on-one. They can send broadcast messages to their fans, to their followers. They can send a band of cart campaigns, which a lot of stores know about, like, except you can send it to a lot more people and it's more personal and it's more direct and it's easier for them to opt out. But you can also automate the answering of common customer questions. You can use you can use conversation to recommend products. So we enable all these kinds of campaigns you did over email for online stores, but then we add new levels of automation and personalization that was not possible before. Mm. So that's their immediate focus within Octane. Um, and then what about your work in Samosource? So... I can't take m- much, if any, credit for it. So that is entirely uh, Lila Jana, who is an incredible, incredible human being who I've known for almost a decade now. And so when she started Samasource, like it was always the same mission, which is we give a lot of charity as Americans. We give money. But think about on the other end. You're just you're being given money and you're told, like, you need this. It only helps you temporarily. And it doesn't help you feel like you're in control of your life. You're dependent on other people. Now, compare that to like what Samasource does is instead of giving you money, we give you work. And by we tr- help train you on the digital world and digital economy. And so uh, we have like centers in Nairobi, Kenya and in Gulu, Uganda and in India and in the rural U.S. And you 
go through one of these and you learn everything from like social media to digital tagging to other kinds of skills. And suddenly you can make eight times as much money as you used to. Suddenly you can buy your way out of poverty. You can help your family. Suddenly you're in control of your life because you can get a job. Samasource hires a bunch of the people that go through that program. Others like start their own thing or join another company. But now they have skills that make them like in control of their own destinies. They can make a living, a really good living. And not just that, but the biggest thing I think is giving hope. And you have hope and you have like belief now that like I have a th- I have a skill set that's valuable. I have a job that's valuable. I know that I will get a paycheck in two weeks. Unlike being like, I don't know when the next donation will come. I'm not dependent on anyone else. I'm dependent on myself and my own skill set and how good I am. Because work out of, in this entire world, we are defined most by what we do as work. That is what defines us. There's probably other times in society where the work you did did not define you. It was defined by your family. It was defined by some your tribe or something else. We are defined by what we do. That's what when they say, uh, what do you do? No one ever, almost no one ever goes like, you know, I like to kite surf and. Uh, what are you passionate about? Right. But people And a say, lot of times there's a disconnect, which is yeah. where it gets challenging. So to give people like that identity is incredible. Giving people that skill set is incredible. Giving people control over their own destinies is indescribable. As entrepreneurs, it's, you know, being optimistic is part of what makes you a good entrepreneur. Like having that sort of, in some ways, a naive optimism um, of the amount of things that you can do. Do you ever feel, I don't know, do you ever feel like the, the weight of all the things you have to do and then wondering how it will ever be enough or you'll ever be able to achieve all the things that you want? All the time, every day, every moment. Uh, you somehow, you either get really good at handling and managing and realizing that you just can't do everything every day and you take it one day at a time or you go insane and you can choose one of those two things and that's pretty much it. So uh, I've, I know that I can't do everything every single day. So I set smaller, more achievable goals and I hammer through them one by one and when something gets too much, I try to figure out a way whether or not it is like maybe we can hire somebody to like help offload that. Maybe it is making myself more efficient in some way. But we need to – you have to take breaks and you have to not consider yourself uh, like – you can't take two energy drinks every day and pull 24-hour binges and expect that your company will survive or you will survive because honestly your best work is not done at 3 a.m. on a 24-hour binge on your third Red Bull. It's done when you're fresh and your team is uh, focused and they can they, you're predictable. So it's, it's a thing you sh- that every entrepreneur, I feel like, struggles with. It's a matter of how you decide to handle it, what your coping mechanisms are, how you break it down into little pieces and making sure you take actual breaks, see actual friends, watch an actual TV show, play a little game, just something to like switch your mind once in a while. What was the last thing that you did? I mean, I... Take a break. I mean, I went to see Black Panther yesterday. Ah, I still need to watch that. Oh, Wakanda (laughs) forever. Anyone who's seen the movie (laughs) will know what I mean. Seriously, like... That was that was fantastic. A movie is great because you turn your brain off. So mm. I try to go for some activities that turn the brain off. I don't have to be thinking about – I'm not thinking about 
work. I'm not thinking about anything else except being engrossed in the movie when I'm watching a movie. So sometimes you got to do that once in a while. Sometimes you need to just turn your brain off. Reboot. What does keep you up at night right now? Uh, I'm more I, like at one point I would have been like, well, you know, if the world is going to end soon. But I'm more hopeful than that. I would say that uh, what keeps me up at night, not that much. Like I generally see like, look, you could worry. I could worry about like if the company, like if there's enough money, if X and Y. This is the kind of worry that every entrepreneur has. Are we doing enough? Is revenue growing enough, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, but if you let that keep you up at night, then you just start fulfilling a like self-fulfilling prophecy that is not going to end well. Same thing with like you're worried about the world. If you let that keep you up at night, then you're only going to get more worried and you're going to only get more stressed instead of being like, take it a little bit at a time and figure out what are the things you can do to make an impact, a positive change, a little progress every day. And if you do that, you'll be fine. And you can go and take a real sleep because everyone needs sleep. <laughs> Do you ever feel like as, I mean, especially as a really efficient entrepreneur and um, just, you know, constantly hustling that you lose touch with emotions? Lose touch with emotions. Wow. <laughs> you ask the easy questions. Uh, so one, I don't consider myself all that efficient. I feel like it could be way more efficient. Yeah. I feel like my co-founder, uh, both my co-founders, so I have three co-founders, I have three of us total. They're both more efficient than me in a lot of ways. Do I lose touch with my emotions? Uh, so, okay. No, but is my answer. So mm, I feel like my empathy makes me a better entrepreneur, not a worse one. And if I lose that, then I would be a worse entrepreneur. On the other hand, a business is a business. Like if you hire a friend, you have to know that you are risking your friendship with that person because – if you hire a friend and that friend is vastly underperforming and eating your resources and you don't fire that person, all the rest of your employees, your contractors, your customers, you're hurting them and you're making them suffer. And so like it's because instead of like, you know, that salary going to somebody who is not doing their work, you could hire two other people who would do double the work. And that would be much better for the business and the chance of survival. And so Empathy makes for great entrepreneurs, I strongly believe. And empathy is actually one of the core values of Octane. But you also have to, like, sometimes, like, you had not take it out of the equation, but be as objective as you can with what is best for the business. Because it's more than just you. It's more than just your emotions. It's this overall picture. And there's lots of people, whether they are your investors or your customers or especially your team, depending on you and the decisions you make. I want to go back quickly to one of the things that you'd said about your Midwestern roots and how that made you something like more humble than you could or should be. I guess my whole point on that one is I'd not necess- no one, I don't think the word humble would be something that people would describe me with, unfortunately. I wish I were more humble. I want to be more humble, but I'm not as humble as I would like to be. Uh, I feel like if I didn't come to the Midwest, I'd be much worse. And I feel like I've gotten better over time, but it's also a weakness of mine that I know of that uh, I don't like necessarily like being or want to be humble or something of the sort. And I would like to be a more humble and I would like to learn how to be more humble. Do you think there's a connection between humility and empathy? I think so, but I don't know for certain, but I think so. I think 
the most empathetic people in the world are often the most humble. But I don't have research in my back pocket to back that up. But that would be my guess, which yeah. means I could be more empathetic, and that would be great. Do you do you ever see? I mean, do you see a difference between some of the male founders and female founders, or even male investors, female investors that you encounter in in that sense? There's so much difference. Uh, which is part of the unfair playing field that female entrepreneurs and female investors have to play in, which is partly – it's partly cultural. It's partly – there's so many factors that we won't even be able to unpack. But uh, like a simple factor of – like when Sheryl Sandberg's book Lean In came, came out, like a lot of the things that in her book resonate with me where um, I, I have certain female friends who won't like – like, okay, just straight up like a job thing. If I was at a job, if most men were at like a thing and they were offered a position that they felt like probably not, they're not exactly qualified for, almost every single man would be like, yeah, I can do that. I'll just learn on the job. I want that promotion. As while on the other hand, and this is a thing that Cheryl writes about, a lot of women will be like, I might not be ready. I should like wait or something I'm like only that. only 80% qualified. Right. And these, this is the why... And this is one of the many, many, there are many reasons. This is one of the many reasons uh, there are more men at sea level than uh, women. And like part of it is uh, how we are, both genders are brought up culturally. Part of it is the inherent bias that, it, like both like conscious and unconscious bias. And a lot of men I feel like are not willing to admit that including like are willing to admit that they have an unconscious bias and that it seeps into the way in which they interact with the opposite gender and the way in which they uh, evaluate team members, the way in which they evaluate uh, potential partners, all sorts of things like that. Uh, I like I had this argument with somebody about whether unconscious biases even exist. I'm like, are you crazy? Of course they effing exist. They all the time. Like your unconscious is always having an impact on everything you do. Um, and so, of course, we are, as not just men, but uh, all of society, men, women, everything, have an unconscious bias against women in lots of, like, leadership-style roles, which is, like, the language that we use. Like, ah, another random example to talk about. Uh, the, the things, the machines in our homes, the Google Homes and Alexas, <laughs> they are defaulted to women. Mm -hmm. And we're literally teaching a generation of kids – the bark commands at female robots and that those female robots will do whatever you say. And that terrifies me. I don't even know where to go from there. But like there's there's a lot – there's so much more to overcome. Um, and I don't want to make it sound hopeless. Uh, we're making progress. It's just – it's going to take a very long time to make the kind of progress that actually needs to be made. And those biases are not going to go away in a few years or even a century. Those biases – have been rooted so deep in human culture, conscious and unconscious, that they will continue for an unforeseen amount of time. We'll get better, we'll get smarter, we'll hopefully be more aware of our unconscious biases, um, but it means that there's a kind of different playing field, and that sucks. How do you think that even guys can even initiate this sort of conversation? Like. Let's. It's funny because I kind of um, I categorize unconsciously. I would say guys who are woke and guys who are not woke. <laughs> <laughs> and um, 
and I have a lot of men who will come to me and say, you know, I want to help. I, what do I do? What sorts of questions should I be asking? Like, what should I be aware of? Um, and I found that, you know, ultimately, one, I mean, the empathy has to be there, but a lot of times, like, it has to be in some ways initiated by a guy for other guys to listen, um, to really, really listen, because it's coming from a peer. Um, so how do you think guys can initiate that sort of conversation. This is a thing that Cheryl also told me once, which is just that men have to be part of that conversation. It's just talking about it. Um, in, that doesn't have to mean you have to write a blog post. It just means no, no more blog posts. <laughs> have a conversation with somebody about it, or uh, a, the very minimum is acknowledge you have unconscious biases. Mm-hmm. That would even just be a good first step. That unconscious bias exists and. You have it, and even if you, like, believe that we live in an unfair society and that women have it much harder than they should, that even then your unconscious biases definitely impact the way in which you treat other people and behave, men or women, and that those biases will affect everything from who you hire. Like, the the screen thing. So the fact that... By putting a screen, like a screen, so you can't tell if the person playing at a. So when you do blind auditions for mm-hmm. like for orchestras, for orchestras, yeah, you know exactly. Like that, if you do it blind, it's much more likely that they'll choose the the tra- the rate of chance that they will choose a woman as like the winner, the like person to hire. It's much higher than before, and that's not on. It's not because the director is sexist. I don't actually think oftentimes it is. It's just. This unconscious bias of what should a lead trombonist look like in your head, in the heads of society, that is going to take, again, decades and longer to overcome. Mm. So, okay, long road ahead, obviously. There's, a, there's, there's, there's absolutely <laughs> a long road ahead. Which is just, um, I mean, but, some of the work that I'm doing, she works. It's a big part of, big part of that, what it, we're battling. For better or for worse, it yep. means you're going to have a job. <laughs> For a very long time, and I don't know whether that makes me very happy for you or very sad for you. It's a little bit of both. Is that all right? Yeah, I, I'm really <laughs> excited for it. I think there's a lot of change that's happening soon, and um, you know, I've certainly had those days where I'm like, "Is it ever going to be enough?" But um, I, I'm very optimistic about how much can happen during my lifetime. One little change, one difference of opinion, one step at a time, it amplifies over time. It's just patience. Mm-hmm. In a lot of ways, like we won't change society today or tomorrow, but you change a little bit of society here and there, it reverberates over the course of decades. Uh, future generations, you know, the, like this generation treats race and uh, socioeconomic and especially LGBT in a different and I think better way than the past generation. Still a lot of biases still straight up racist and uh, misogynist and uh, hateful people, but every generation it becomes a little bit better or they try a little bit harder or they're a little bit more aware. And we just have to to think of it almost like generation by generation we're improving ourselves. And we can make – we'll make tons of impact now, but we also have to – it takes a longer time to root out unconscious bias. Mm Mm-hmm. For like, and you know, I want to get make change happen tomorrow, but change doesn't happen in a day, or a year, or a decade. 
Um, and so I want to switch gears quickly to your book. And because so, I mean, we're talking about change and change in biases and what people pay attention to. Um, so tell us a little bit more about your book, what inspired you to write that um, and what's happening with it now. So I wrote my book, Captivology, from HarperCollins. You can go and buy it now. I'm legally required by HarperCollins. I always tell you to go grab it on Captivology.com. <laughs> but I wrote the book in part because attention is the currency of the modern economy. So entrepreneurs need the attention of investors, of customers. But teachers need the attention of students. Musicians need the attention of agents and fans. Attention is how you build a brand, how you build a business, how you build a career. It's increasingly scattered. And the other, yeah, the other piece of it is our attention is definitely more scattered. Like it definitely leads to us being more distracted. And so both, if you understand attention at a more fundamental level, you will both be able to capture more attention for your cause and you will be more aware of why your attention goes haywire and what is happening to your attention. And so I went through 300 years of scientific research in attention and memory. I interviewed over 100 people, both like PhDs and business leaders. So like Sheryl Sandberg contributed, Steven Soderbergh, the director contributed, David Copperfield contributed, the creator of Super Mario, Shigeru Miyamoto contributed, uh, Susan Cain, the best-selling author of Quiet contributed, but also the like combining the two pieces. And so I use stories to explain these scientific phenomena, these unconscious biases that impact our attention. So wearing specific colors will change the distance in which the opposite, opposite gender will sit towards you. Like if you're wearing uh, red, the opposite gender on average will sit about six inches closer to you than they would have otherwise. Hmm. You're wearing kind of red now, but we're separated by a, a table. I mean, it's a pretty table. You all can't see it, but it's a very it's, a, it's not a pretty table. It's like a it's like a table in a mini dungeon. Are we in a mini dungeon? It's all right. You know, you don't can't see the podcast. You can't see what we're doing. We're doing it in a gold palace. It floats in the sky. Just imagine that, everyone. Uh, so, but like, there's all these unconscious biases I talk about, and conscious ones of the book. I talk about, for ex- like, for example, that um, we automatically pay attention to things that are out of place, things that disrupt our view of the world. So if like a group of clowns come out of a car immediately right in front of your apartment or your office, you will pay attention. But that's not the same as being able to capture attention for your cause or, you know, sell, trying to raise money for your nonprofit. It has to match in some kind of way. That's why um, if, you have, if, you're, if you have a sex scandal – and you're a rapper, you're probably going to be less affected than if you're a politician because we have different expectations of what the two are. But I also talk about like long-term things like how do you build long-term affinity and I talk about things like the mystery trigger and how we pay attention especially to stories that have a mysterious element or like an unsolved piece of the puzzle. Or most powerful of all my triggers in the book is acknowledgement, how we pay attention to the people and things who pay attention to us and provide us with validation, empathy, and understanding. And that little actions can have a major impact on the long-term attention somebody has. Um, and that we build these deep things uh, called parasocial relationships with brands and with celebrities. Like some people feel closer to celebrities. Actually, a lot of people feel closer to celebrities or YouTubers than they do to their own family because of the parasocial relationship. It's the fact that we can have this 
two feeling of a two-way relationship when really it's one way because you and I could probably describe things about Jennifer Lawrence or Taylor Swift or uh, or Oprah or anyone else, but we really don't know them and they definitely don't know us, but we can feel like we really know them. And it's a, like a very powerful, powerful thing that impacts politics, that impacts entertainment, that impacts entrepreneurship, that impacts the way in which we we behave. And so I studied all, all these things and I tried to put it into a book that uh, you could read on a couple plane flights. Mm. And you use those methodologies to inform how you build your own brand and present yourself? I mean, I am wearing a funky hat right now, right? <laughs> it's true. Uh, the, and red. I mean, the red was an accident. <laughs> what are uh, what are repellent colors? So it's, not, so it's not repellent. It's so think of it this way: um, the automaticity trigger. The first one in my book is about the fact that we pay attention to uh, certain sensory cues, especially things that are, have a high contrast. Or so there's two. Like one is a high contrast. So if I'm wearing red in a room that's all red, then I'm not going to really stand out. And I, you won't pay attention to me. If you're wearing black in New York. If you, <laughs> but if you're wearing, but in general, bright colors tend to attract more attention because most of the backgrounds we live with in life are darker colors. They are asphalt, grass, dirt, darker mm-hmm. colors. So wearing a neon shirt will definitely stand out more. And you will, like, the eye will automatically be trained towards it. But it's also the same thing of if you hear a gunshot, mm. you will pay attention to it because it's that is louder. Ordinary. Well, it's also out louder than everything else around you. And so it stands out from a automated sensory input. And the automaticity trigger is entirely about protecting yourself. So if you hear a gunshot, you're going to duck because you're trying to protect yourself. If you see... Uh, yellow and black on a buzzing insect, you're going to go run away because we've been hardwired by our DNA to fear that because that's going to sting you or that's going to bite you and that's not going to be fun or you're going to die. Like, And these kinds of things are all throughout like society. So I talk a lot about all those sorts of things as well. Hmm. Um, are there any fears for you that remain perhaps under the surface or that might bubble up every so often? Uh, fear that I'm insane for doing the entrepreneurship thing. Because entrepreneurship, let's be frank, is not the best way to accumulate wealth. So is it where, I mean, is that fear rooted in like not having money, being a failure? Like what, what does yes. that actually mean? Yes. To all Running of out of time. Yes. All of that. You totally think about that. You're like, will like, will I be able to retire? Will I be able to? Uh, will I be able to keep up with my with my friends who have bought houses and things like that? Like I like I have been lucky in my career. Like and I have made some, but it's also like right now. Like when you're a startup, you underpay yourself in order to fund the rest of the business, and I know that. I could make a lot more if I decided to not be doing Octane and be doing something else. But I'm making that conscious choice because I want to, because I can make an impact, because I know that this is what I want to do. And so, like, but there's a fear of, like, if I may, you know, what happens if you screw it up? What, like, have you screwed yourself over? Things like that. Um, And it affects your friendships. And, like, if you have a nine to five, 
you can have a lot of time and you have a lot of headspace to build really awesome friendships and relationships with a lot of people. You just have less of that time or it's harder to make that time or it's harder to get out of your own head when you're a founder and especially when you've raised money and you have employees to support. And it's harder to get out of that headspace. It's harder to be like, I like, I, it's okay that I'm hanging out at 7.30 p.m. with these friends because I, and when I could instead be sending emails to investors as an example. But you have to get out of that mindset, sometimes at least, in order to be both be sane and to be fresh. If you're working every single weekend, you will not be fresh on Monday. You will not be able to like work properly. If you're not taking some vacation, you're setting a bad example for your team, things like that. Do you find then that most of your friends also double as work friends? Because I think especially as an entrepreneur, that's even more common, whereas there there's isn't really that delineation as opposed to when you have a nine to five, you're like, okay, here are my colleagues and then here are my friends. So I feel like a lot of people like work friends, are, like even nine to five, you have work friends. But what I, 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 part of, I moved to New York recently, I think as you know, but the audience might not know. Um, after seven years in San Francisco. And part of that was so that I would have like circles of friendship and relationships and networks that were not, not dominated, just tech and, not just tech and entrepreneurship. Yep. And I feel like I've been pretty successful with that so far, but that's part of the reason I did it. But yeah, it's easier to like, you have a common thing. You all like understand the like same news. Totally, I have, a, most of my friends are tech or entrepreneurship, but um, I try and I definitely have more of those in New York than I did in San Francisco as an example. And I try, and, but there's, you know, a lot of nights here, like I'll pick, like I do want to work and I want to send these emails. I will feel crazy if I don't do that right now. Um, and that affects you, like how many friendships you can have, what kind of life you live. Um, it, my last point on that is, you know, if you wanted to, there's, there's two types of people in this world, I believe. Uh, there's an inter, there's people who are internal and people who are external. And what I mean by that is and neither is bad and both are good. Internal people are about like finding happiness and like what's going to make me the happiest. External people are like I, like I care less about my personal happiness and I care about what impact I can make upon the world. And that impacts – like I find a lot of entrepreneurs are the external rather than the internal mm-hmm. because yep. if you are choosing the thing that would make you absolutely happiest, it's probably not entrepreneurship necessarily. No. It's probably <laughs> uh, getting a kind of job that pays – like you can go work remote and paid nicely and go like hike around and uh, in beautiful beaches and countrysides and uh, enjoy life that way. Like you would probably be happier. Honestly, and money will not really make you any happier. It'll just, it'll just, it just gives you a baseline of not unhappy. But if you're doing it for money, then it's not like you're doing it wrong. Money doesn't lead to happiness. If you're doing it for impact and you know that like you are sacrificing something, but in return for something else, that works. I guess my point being that. There is, in that case, I don't think you – it's hard to quote-unquote have it all in that kind of sense mm-hmm. because I feel like the lifestyle of a lot of entrepreneurs is not necessary is a very – is one that involves a lot of sacrifice for the good of others, whether it is your team or the larger world in some way. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I – well – 
One of the things that I think is almost sometimes a taboo topic for entrepreneurs because we're talk about work all day. <laughs> talk about work, talk about meetings, talk about clients, whatever, um, is like family and relationships um, and, and even self-care. So yesterday, I, I actually, casual midday root canal, um, you know, it was Novocaine, all the good stuff. And then right after, I was like, pop two Tylenols, came right back to work and then was in the office till 11. And then half of my face was like falling off. But it was, it was only because um, I had, I was supposed to get that like two months ago. And it finally got to the point that I was like, I'm leaving next week for an entire month. I got to get this done. Um, but I think it's really easy to forget, not forget, but just like put it as put a it bottom off. priority, your own, your self-care, your emotional needs, um, as it comes to family and relationships. So how have you been able to juggle that? You got to force one, you got to force yourself. Like, don't do that again, please. <laughs> I need you to not die. Um, you dying would be bad. Okay. Promise me you won't do <laughs> that it. again. You will like self-care. Okay. Self-care. Number one. Good. Good. Because uh, that impact, that, like, honestly, I think about it long term. is like, that's going to impact my work. I'm going to think about pain. That's going to decrease my productivity. Deal with it now. Um, my, like, there's hacks to it, which is just, like, st- literally stick a thing on the calendar. Literally sticking a workout on the calendar makes me go work out. Because it's on the calendar. You can't, like, no, I, I'm not rescheduling around that. It's right there. I'm going to go and do that workout because I scheduled it. Or... And then, like, other hacks, like, my assistant will put in, like, a couple workouts or class passes, and I'm like, you're going to that class pass because it's on the calendar, and I cleared the calendar for that, so you're going. I'm going to ask you about it. So other pe- having other people help keep you accountable, whether or not it's your team or your friends or your co-founders or someone else to keep you uh, keep you responsible to yourself. And so, like, I'll do that for my co-founder. I'll do that for friends. I'm going to do that for you. Like, seriously, don't do that again. Okay, Lisa? <laughs> Got it. I, I need you to not die. <laughs> Dying is bad. Um, having teeth that rot away is bad, okay? <laughs> Just see? We're, do, we're doing it now. This is the kind of thing. Uh, when, when do you feel most vulnerable? All the time? Uh, that's the hardest one you've asked. I feel like actually personal re- it's personal relationships, honestly. Like, I feel pretty confident in the way in which... I work and I manage it. I feel like like my insecurities don't come from work. They come from personal. They come from like things like, do I like do I need therapy for something? Do I uh, am I going to work so much that somebody won't go on another date? Won't go on a date with me? Am I interesting in all these sorts of different things? Those are more my insecurities. Those are more of those than like work related ones. Like. You feel most insecure, I feel like, as an entrepreneur when you don't have the direction for your company. Like, you don't know if people want your product. When you know people want your product, it changes. You're like, you know what things you need to do and experiment with in order to make it work. It definitely has a change. Like, definitely change for Octane. Like, there was a time where, like, who wants our product? Is our product valuable? Do people want it? Now we're like, we know our product's valuable. It makes stores a lot more money and makes their customers a lot happier. And we have data to prove it and we have case studies to prove it. And we know if we put it in front of a store, they will buy it because every single store that uses Octane makes more money than they spend on it. Now I know exactly the direction. Direction provides clarity. Clarity provides 
uh, decreases your insecurity is what I feel like. So like having for me that guiding direction of in my life of like have the ability and thus responsibility to change the world for the better has helped me have more clarity in my life than uh, I feel like I would have had otherwise and that a lot of people uh, often don't have. And so like I always have like try to have at least like one guiding light of being like, I don't know how I'm going to get to there, but that's what I'm trying to go for. You know, if you know where you're trying to get to, or like at least a vague idea of that, um, you then you don't know the path. It's okay because you kind of know the general direction. Is it east? Is it west? Is it north? Is it entrepreneurship? Is it uh, living the best life in in Hawaii? Is it uh, focusing on family? Is it focusing on a loved one? Is it nonprofit? Is it self sacrifice? A guiding direction like that always helps you make decisions and gives you clarity. So early on in your career, though, you I know you had a couple or a few startups. Um, did you feel like you had clarity then? And um, what was it like, I mean, attempting some of your first startups? Oh, they all failed. Uh, like, I tried a small one in, in high, not in college, but I didn't know at all what I was doing. It was more for the dream. Um, I tried one, I did small one for a short period of time with my one of my best friends, Hillary Carls, who is now a senior um, engineering manager over at Uber and is super amazing. But what we were building, like what we eventually figured out we were building, we didn't really know what we were building. And then we figured out that what we were building was in social analytics product. And we both did not want to do that. And so we that was when we decided we couldn't do the company anymore. And we returned the remainder of our investor money back to investors, which is a rare thing. And we decided to... Um, call quits there. And that was the clarity moment because we didn't have clarity exactly what we were trying to build. But there definitely was like one moment where it's like on the couch and I was shaking. I'm like, I don't know what we're going to do. Uh, and he was like, 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 I don't know either, but it'll be okay. We'll figure it out. Um, and we did not in the way of like, we figured out a multi-billion dollar company, but we definitely like moved on to, like we learned from those and moved on to, uh, move forward in paths. Because, like, the other thing, too, to remember always as an entrepreneur is the world will not end if you fail. Like, Even though it can feel like it sometimes. It can feel like it, but the truth is you will probably be all right. You will have gained lots of skills that you can translate and connections you can translate into jobs. And you can help your team get jobs or your team, you know, they will find something. Um, and the world will not end. Uh, and so if you just have to remember that a little bit, you want to still work really hard and you still want it to fail, but the world will not end. And there's always, like, you will be okay. You will always, you will be okay. You will be okay. Great. Well, on that note, uh, I just want to thank you again and close off with what we call the one thing, which is actually something we already talked about, which is that all it takes is one thing, one person, one voice to completely change someone else's perspective and change the world. Um, so I'm going to ask you about a few of your one things, and we'll get started. I'm ready. What is one truth you believe that other people may not believe? I didn't, I didn't even know these would be coming up. All right. <laughs> uh, one truth that I believe. I have a lot of ones, some more controversial than others, but I, I'm not going to pick like a personal one as much as a world one, which is that I believe the vast majority of the human race will soon not have to work in order for society to function. I believe that uh, automation is going to make it so that uh, the modern concept of work is obsolete and w we as a society are not yet prepared for that. 
and we could go another hour into it, but we have to do a much better job of preparing the world and preparing our workforce for an economy where uh, most the you don't the ma- most human beings do not have to work for society to function, and that self worth should not have to always be tied to what you do, but could be tied to other things. Hmm. What is one question you wish people would ask each other more often? Are you okay? Um, or can I, what can I, what, what do you need help with? Or do you want to, what are you doing? <laughs> like, I would like that more. I wish more friends would just text me. Friends. What are you doing? Yeah, what are you doing? Because, like, look, maybe four or five, out of five, five times I won't be able to go do something because I'll have a plan. But, you know, like this weekend was a perfect example. I got, like, a text from my friend Morgan. It's like, yo, what are you doing? You want to get dinner with my friend and I? And I'm like, actually, I don't have anything right now. Let's do it. I like yeah. more of that in my life. Yeah, rather than the constant scheduling. I think there's something about New York where it feels like everyone is always busy and therefore you should be busy. Therefore, you shouldn't have that blank time. Um, and I think there's that, I mean, there's a level of vulnerability to be able to text someone and just be like, what are you doing? AKA, I'm not doing anything. I'm just going to text you that whole bunch. <laughs> Great. Um what is one piece of advice uh, or the best piece of advice that you've been given? My grandfather gave me several pieces of advice um, that are also guiding for my life. The, la- the fifth and last one is opportunities can seldom be hoarded. And so mm-hmm. great opportunities, great things, like great moments in life should be shared. Great opportunities should be shared. Opportunities and successes are ring more hollow if you can't if you're not sharing that if you don't have uh, a team or somebody if you are unwilling to share that they ring hollow so on that note if let's say you wake up tomorrow and everything that you've ever done has been erased all those social channels that book unwritten all those articles gone um and you could share one thing with the world what would it be well, my first thing was thinking, uh, this is all a dream. You're about to wake up. So wake up. Wake up, everyone. Wake up. Wake up. Okay. Um, now that I'll stop messing with everybody's heads, like the one thing that I want to, them to take away or to – the one thing I want to – Like if, if people are like, Ben left this for the world, and maybe it's, it's not your company anymore because obviously – And let's throw out commercial space station Um, (laughs) that he he was a positive force for his friends and his loved ones that spending time with him may enrich their lives rather than detracted from it. And by enriching their lives, they were able to enrich the lives of others. Great. Funny how it always comes back to that. Just loved ones, friends positive influence seems kind of worthless if it doesn't <laughs> um and then last thing because i want to make this as actionable as possible one small challenge that the audience who's listening right now could take today um to potentially make their lives better to make someone else's life better what's one thing causing stress or discomfort in your life and how can you uh remove it or make it better because we deal with a lot of BS in our lives and not all of it can you like immediately fix and some of it can never be fixed. 
but how can you make it better? Whether it is just talking about it with somebody or leaving an abusive relationship or an abusive co-founder relationship or uh, taking a concrete action to go for towards the goal or dream that you have. One thing I hear a lot from a lot of aspiring entrepreneurs is like, you know, I'm going to spend two years like saving with some money and trying to do some research for this thing. And I'm like, you could figure out in about five minutes or maybe a week whether or not there's demand for your product with the most basic like survey or test. Just go do the thing. Just go do a thing. Just go do anything. <laughs> like That's how I feel. <laughs> you, nothing in your life changes without taking any a type of action, even a small one. If there's something you want to do or something that's like take any kind of action, but and don't wait, don't like delay it. Don't be like I need to wait a couple of weeks or a couple of months or I need to have this or that. There are lots of actions that you can take that don't cost any money, that don't cost a ton of time that you could do now that move you towards your goal, that will make you happier, that will uh, remove a negativity from your life. Just go do a thing. Do the thing. Do anything. Go do a thing. Do a thing. Great. Well, thank you so much, Ben. This has been a great conversation. If people want to find out more about you or contact you, what would be the best way? So... At Ben Parr, B-E-N-P-A-R-R, on every social network, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, Snapchat, Google Plus, if for some reason you use <laughs> Google Plus. Uh, uh, BenParr.com, contact form is there. Uh, and OctaneAI.com is the best way. Go, if you're an e-commerce store, you know somebody who sells stuff online and you they like to make more money and make customers happier, you totally want to go to OctaneAI.com right now. Get yourself a bot. Get yourself messenger marketing. Amazing. And I know there's a, a whiskey. Oh. <laughs> mm, I'm I, working on that. There's a whiskey called Grand Old Par that is not, that just shares my name, <laughs> is not, you know, endorsed by Ben Par yet. But, you know. Um, In should, the future empire. Should totally be endorsed by a Ben Par because it's a very tasty, delicious 12-year scotch whiskey that's been around since the 1800s. Hint, hint. Okay, we'll make sure that we'll make sure that they hear this episode. All right. Well, thanks, Ben, uh, for all of your insight and wisdom. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. I, I'm gonna I'm gonna do I'm gonna do this pose. You can't see what the pose is, audience. I'm gonna let you wonder what pose I'm making. Panda pose. Is not the panda pose. Maybe <laughs> the panda warrior pose. There you have it, folks. I hope you enjoyed today's episode as much as I did. I created the Enoughness podcast to reveal the real stories behind the leaders we admire, to address this universal question that we all have at some point or another. Am I good enough? So just remember that you're not on this journey alone and that you do have the power of enoughness. If you want the full show notes and transcript from today's episode, go to www.lisawang.co slash podcast. Again, that's lisawang.co slash podcast. And you'll be able to follow along. I'd love if you could leave a review or tag anything that you share on Twitter or Instagram with hashtag enoughness. And you can find me at Lisa Works, L-I-S-A-W-O-R-X on Twitter or Instagram. Catch you in the next episode.